0: A message to the mayor starting on page 63 in your book. This is part two. The messenger's headquarters was on Cloving Street, not far from the back of the Gathering Hall. When Lina arrived the next morning, she was greeted by messenger Captain Alice Fleary, a bony woman with pale eyes and hair the color of dust. Our new girl, said Captain Fleary to the other messengers, a cluster of nine people who smiled and nodded at Lina. "'I have your jacket right here,' said the captain. She handed Lina a red jacket like the one all messengers wore. It was only a little too large. From the clock tower of the gathering hall came a deep reverberating bong. Eight o'clock!' cried Captain Fleary. She waved a long arm. "'Take your stations!' As the clock sounded seven more times, the messengers scattered in all directions. The captain turned to Lina. Your station, she said, is Garn Square. Lina nodded and started off, but the captain caught her by the collar. I haven't told you the rules, she said. She held up a knobby finger. One, when a customer gives you a message, repeat it back to make sure you have it right. Two, always wear your red jacket so people can identify you. Three, go as fast as possible. Your customers pay 20 cents for every message, no matter how far you have to take it. Lina nodded. I always go fast, she said. Four, the captain went on. Deliver a message only to the person it's meant for, no one else. Lina nodded again. She bounced a little on her toes, eager to get going. Captain Fleary smiled. Go, she said, and Lina was off. She felt strong and speedy and sure-footed. She glanced at her reflection as she ran past the window of a furniture repair shop. She liked the look of her long, dark hair flying out behind her, her long legs in their black socks, and her flapping red jacket. Her face, which had never seemed especially remarkable, looked almost beautiful because she looked so happy. As soon as she came into Garn Square, a voice cried, "'Messenger!' Her first customer, it was old Natty Prine calling to her from the bench where he always sat. This goes to Ravnet Parsons, 18 Selverton Square, he said, bend down. She bent down so that her ear was close to his whiskery mouth. The old man said in a slow, hoarse voice, my stove is broke, don't come for dinner. Repeat, Liner repeated the message. "'Good,' said Natty Prime. He gave Lina 20 cents, and she ran across the city to Silverton Square. There she found Ravnit Parsons, also sitting, on a bench. She recited the message to him. "'Old turnip head,' he growled. "'Lazy old flea face. He just doesn't feel like cooking. No reply.' Lina ran back to Garn Square, passing a group of believers on the way. They were standing in a circle, holding hands, singing one of their cheerful songs. It seemed to Lina there were more believers than ever these days. What they believed in, she didn't know, but it must make them happy. They were always smiling. Her next customer turned out to be Mrs. Polster, the teacher of the fourth year class. In Mrs. Polster's class, they memorized passages from the Book of the City of Ember every week. Mrs. Polster had charts on the walls for everything with everyone's name listed. If you did something right, she made a green dot by your name. If you did something wrong, she made a red dot. What you need to learn, children? She always said in her resonant, precise voice is the difference between right and wrong in every area of life. And once you learn the difference, here she would stop and point to the class and the class would finish the sentence. You must always choose the right. In every situation, Mrs. Polster knew what the right choice was. Now, here was Mrs. Polster again, looming over Lina and pronouncing her message. To Anastet LaFront, 39 Hum Street, as follows, she said. My confidence in you has been seriously diminished since I heard about the disreputable activities in which you engaged on Thursday last. Please repeat. It took Lina three tries to get this right. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh, a red dot for me, she said. Mrs. Polster did not seem to find this amusing. Lina had 19 customers that first morning. Some of them had ordinary messages. I can't come on Tuesday. Buy a pound of potatoes on your way home. Please come and fix my front door. Others had messages that made no sense to her at all, like Mrs. Polster's, but it didn't matter. The wonderful part about being a messenger was not the messages, but the places she got to go. She could go into the houses of people she didn't know and hidden alleyways and little rooms in the backs of stores. In just a few hours, she discovered all kinds of strange and interesting things. For instance, Mrs. Sample, the mender, had to sleep on her couch because her entire bedroom, almost up to the ceiling, was crammed with clothes to be mended. Dr. Fellinia Tower had the skeleton of a person hanging against her living room wall, its bones all held in place with black strings. "'I study it,' she said when she saw Linus staring. I have to know how people are put together." At a house on Calou Street, Lina delivered a message to a worried-looking man whose living room was completely dark. "'I'm saving on light bulbs,' the man said, and when Lina took a message to the Can Cafe, she learned that on certain days the back room was used as a meeting place for people who like to converse about great subjects. "'Do you think an invisible being is watching over us all the time? She heard someone ask, perhaps, answered someone else. There was a long silence. And then again, perhaps not. All of it was interesting. She loved finding things out and she loved running. And even by the end of the day, she wasn't tired. Running made her feel strong and big hearted. It made her love the places she ran through and the people whose messages she delivered. She wished she could bring all of them the good news they so desperately wanted to hear. Late in the afternoon, a young man came up to her walking with a sort of sideways lurch. He was an odd-looking person. He had a very long neck with a bump in the middle and teeth so big they looked as if they were trying to escape from his mouth. His black bushy hair stuck out from his head in untidy tufts. I have a message for the mayor at the gathering hall, he said. He paused to let the importance of this be understood. The mayor, he said. Did you get that? I got it, said Lina. All right, listen carefully. Tell him, delivery at eight from Looper. Repeat it back. Delivery at eight from Looper, Lina repeated. It was an easy message. All right, no answer required. He handed her 20 cents and she sprinted away. The Gathering Hall occupied one entire side of Harkin Square, which was the city's central plaza. The square was paved with stone. It had a few benches bolted to the ground here and there, as well as a couple of kiosks for notices. Wide steps led up to the Gathering Hall, and fat columns framed its big door. The mayor's office was in the Gathering Hall. So were the offices of the clerks, who kept track of which buildings had broken windows, what street lamps needed repair, and the number of people in the city. There was the office of the timekeeper who was in charge of the town clock, and there were offices for the guards who enforced the laws of Ember, now and then putting pickpockets or people who got in fights into the prison room, a small one-story structure with a sloping roof that jutted out from one side of the building. Liner ran up the steps and through the door into a broad hallway. On the left was a desk and at the desk sat a guard. Barton Snowd, assistant guard, set a badge on his chest. He was a big man with wide shoulders, brawny arms, and a thick neck, but his head looked as if it didn't belong to his body. It was small and round and topped with a fuzz of extremely short hair. His lower jaw jutted out and moved a little as he spoke. Oh, I'm sorry, moved a little from side to side as if he were chewing on something. When he saw Lina, his jaw stopped moving for a moment and his lips curled upward in a very small smile. Good day, he said. What business brings you here today? I have a message for the mayor. Very good, very good. Barton Snowed heaved himself to his feet. Step this way. He led Lina down the corridor and opened a door marked reception room. Wait here, please, he said. "'The mayor is in his basement office on private business, but he will be up shortly.'" Lina went inside. "'I'll notify the mayor,' said Barton Snowed. "'Please, have a seat. The mayor will be right with you. Or pretty soon.'" He left, closing the door behind him. A second later, the door opened again, and the guard's small, fuzzy head reappeared. "'What is the message?' he asked. "'I have to give it to the mayor in person.'" said Lina. Of course, of course, said the guard. The door closed again. He doesn't seem very sure about things, Lina thought. Maybe he's new at his job. The reception room was shabby, but Lina could tell that it had once been impressive. The walls were dark red with brownish patches, where the paint was peeling away. In the right-hand wall was a closed door. An ugly brown carpet lay on the floor and on it stood a large armchair covered in itchy-looking red material and several smaller chairs. A small table held a teapot and some cups, and a larger table in the middle of the room displayed a copy of the Book of the City of Ember, lying open, as if someone were going to read from it. Portraits of all the mayors of the city since the beginning of time hung on the walls, staring solemnly from behind pieces of old window glass. Lina sat in the big armchair and waited. No one came. She got up and wandered around the room. She bent over the, the book of the City of Ember and read a few sentences. The citizens of Ember may not have luxuries, but the foresight of the builders who filled the storerooms at the beginning of time has ensured that they will always have enough, and enough is all that a person of wisdom needs. She flipped a few pages the gathering hall clock, she read, measures the hours of night and day. It must never be allowed to run down. Without it, how would we know when to go to work and when to go to school? How would the light director know when to turn the lights on and when to turn them off again? It is the job of the timekeeper to wind the clock every week and to place the date sign in Harkin Square every day. The timekeeper must perform these duties faithfully. Lina knew that not all timekeepers were as faithful as they should be. She'd heard of one some years ago who often forgot to change the date sign so that it might say Wednesday, week 38, year 227, for several days in a row. There had even been timekeepers who forgot to wind the clock so that it might stand at noon or at midnight for hours at a time, causing a very long day or a very long night. The result was, that no one really knew anymore exactly what day of the week it was, or exactly how many years it had been since since the building of the city. They called this the year 241, but it might have been 245 or 239 or 250. As long as the clock's deep boom rang out every hour and the lights went on and off more or less regularly, it didn't seem to matter. Lina left the book and examined the pictures of the mayors. The seventh mayor, Pod Morthwart, was her great-great-she-didn't-know-how-many-greats grandfather. He looked quite dreary, Lina thought. His cheeks were long and hollow, his mouth turned down at the corners, and there was a lost look in his eyes. The picture she liked best was of the fourth mayor, Jane Larkett, who had a serene smile and fuzzy black hair. Still, no one came. She heard no sounds from the hallway. Maybe they'd forgotten her. Lina went over to the closed door in the right-hand wall. She pulled it open and saw stairs going up. Maybe, while she waited, she'd just see where they went. She started upward. At the top of the first flight was a closed door. Carefully, she opened it. She saw another hallway and more closed doors. She shut the door and kept going. Her footsteps sounded loud on the wood, and she was afraid someone would hear her and come and scold her. No doubt, she was not supposed to be here. But no one came, and she climbed on, passing another closed door. The Gathering Hall was the only building in Ember with three stories. She had always wanted to stand on its roof and look out at the city. Maybe from there it would be possible to see beyond the city into the unknown regions. If the bright city of her drawings really did exist, it would be out there somewhere. At the top of the stairs, she came to a door marked Roof, and she pushed it open. Chilly air brushed against her skin. She was outside. Ahead of her was a flat gravel surface, and about 10 paces away, she could see the high wall of the clock tower. She went to the edge of the roof. From there, she could see the whole of Ember. Directly below was Harkin Square, where people were moving this way and that, all of them appearing from this top-down view, more round than tall. Beyond Harkin Square, the lighted windows of the buildings made checkered lines, yellow and black, row after row in all directions. She tried to see farther across the unknown regions, but she couldn't. At the edges of the city, the lights were so far away that they made a kind of haze. She could see nothing beyond them but blackness. She heard a shout from the square below. Look, came a small but piercing voice. Someone on the roof. She saw a few people stop and look up. Who is it? What's she doing up there? Someone cried. More people gathered until a crowd was standing on the steps of the gathering hall. They see me, Lina thought, and it made her laugh. She waved at the crowd and did a few steps from the bugfoot scurry dance, which she'd learned on Cloving Square Dance Day, and they laughed and shouted some more. Then the door behind her burst open, and a huge guard with a bushy black beard was suddenly running toward her. Halt! he shouted, though she wasn't going anywhere. He grabbed her by the arm. What are you doing here? I was just curious, said Lina in her most innocent voice. I wanted to see the city from the roof. She read the guard's name badge. It said Reg Stabmark, Chief Guard. Curiosity leads to trouble, said Reg Stabmark. He peered down at the crowd. You have caused a great commotion. He pulled her toward the door and hustled her down all three flights of stairs. When they came out into the waiting room, Barton Snowd was standing there looking flustered, his jaw twitching from t- side to side. Next to him was the mayor. A child causing trouble, Mayor Cole, said the chief guard. The mayor glared at her. I recall your face from assignment day. Shame, disgracing yourself in your new job. I didn't mean to cause trouble, said Lina. I was looking for you so I could deliver a message. Shall we put her in the prison room for a day or two? asked the chief guard. The mayor frowned. He pondered a moment. What is this message? he said. He bent down so that Lina could speak into his ear. She noticed that he smelled a little like overcooked turnips. Delivery at eight, Lina whispered. From Looper. The mayor smiled a tight little smile. He turned to the guard. Just a child's antics, he said. We will let it go this time. From now on, he said to Lina, behave yourself. Yes, Mr. Mayor, said Lina. And you, said the mayor, turning to the assistant guard and shaking a thick finger at him, watch visitors much more carefully. Barton Snow blinked and nodded. Lina ran for the door. Outside, the small crowd was still standing by the steps. A few of them cheered as Lina came out. Others frowned at her and muttered words like mischief and silliness and show-off. Lina felt embarrassed suddenly. She hadn't meant to show off. She hurried past out onto Otterwill Street and started to run. She didn't see Dune, who was among those watching her. He had been on his way home from his first day in the pipeworks when he'd come across the cluster of people gazing up at the roof of the gathering hall and laughing. He was tired and chilly. The bottoms of his pant legs were wet and mud clung to his shoes and smeared his hands. When he raised his eyes and saw the small figure next to the clock tower, he realized right away that it was Lina. He saw her raise her arm and wave and hop about. And for a second he wondered what it would be like to be up there looking out over the whole city laughing and waving. When Lina came down, he wanted to speak to her, but he knew he was filthy looking and that she would ask him questions he didn't want to answer. So he turned away. Walking fast, he headed for home.